to bring God's words to you this evening. We're in the book of Acts, as we have been for a number of months. Uh, but if you're a visitor with us, you join us in Acts chapter 11. So why don't we open our Bibles to Acts chapter 11. We're going to read a little section from verses 19 through to 30. And if you are using one of the pew Bibles in front of you, that's on page 1105. Before we read it together, let's pray. Our Father, we know that as the Apostle Paul was leaving the Ephesian elders, he said, I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. Lord, we come to your word tonight, seeking to understand more of you and your grace, asking that you would build us up and sanctify us through and through. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So far in the series on Acts, we've had, well, in our text tonight, there's a reference back to chapter 8 and the, the persecution, the death of Stephen, the effect that it has on scattering the believers in Jerusalem. Since then, we've had a conversion or two. We've seen Saul converted. The, preacher, uh, the, pro, the persecutor has become the preacher. And then last time in Acts, we saw the amazing work of God on demonstrating that the offer of his grace knows no prejudices. All may come from all nations uh, to receive the, uh, the forgiveness of sin that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. We saw that when Cornelius was converted. And this is where we come to tonight. Off the back of that, the church recognizing, as it says in verse 18 there, when they, the, the church in Jerusalem, heard the news of Cornelius and the Gentiles' conversion, they say, they praise God, saying, so then God has granted even the Gentiles' repentance unto life. And then we read, now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the ears of the, Jerus the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. During this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. One of them, named Agabus, stood up and through the Spirit predicted a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. And the disciples, each according to his ability, 
decided to provide help for the brothers living in Judea. This they did, sending their gift to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. Amen. And this is God's words. Well, our great hope is in that text in, in two ways, really. Did you see it? Verse 21, a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Isn't that what you long to see in Edinburgh? It should be what we long to see in Edinburgh. Isn't that what you long to see in the nations? It should be what we long to see in the nations, in remarkable ways, in nations that you haven't even set foot in. Through this church, by the Lord's hands, we can do a great work. We saw it again with the encouragement and the, the building up of Barnabas, of the, of the believers in Antioch by Barnabas. He encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Do you see what's happening in this? Effectively, you have a church that's planted and a church that grows. So you have got people who have heard the command of Christ and recognized the Great Commission to go and are doing it. And you've heard people who've been discipled by Jesus and by his early followers as they've become Christians in the first wave of conversions and they are doing what? Growing. Go and grow. You would think it was part of a plan. It's a wonderful thing to see. And what I want us to do tonight is just look through this text in very simple terms, because it is simple. I want us to look at, number one, the Lord's hand in everyday mission. That's go. And the church's role in everyday discipleship. That's grow. Isn't that amazing what we see at the start of this text? As you look with me at verses 19 and 20, you've got a couple of guys who are determined to go in and reach people not like them. And it's unbelievable, actually, who believes when the Lord's hand is with you. So if you see verse 19, interestingly enough, here's the background. Now, those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews, okay? Telling the message only to Jews. Now, we know Peter's just popped into Joppa. We know he's met with Cornelius and seen a great conversion there. But according to verse 19, those who had been dispersed after the persecution of Stephen had gone to Phoenicia, north Cyprus, the island just to the west, and to Antioch, a little further north, telling the message only to Jews. Now, interestingly, Jews are an interesting people to reach. They're a certain category in some respect. They, they come from a monotheistic background. They believe in one God. Uh, they believe in the God of the Old Testament and waited for a Messiah. So in one sense, to evangelize the Jews was to tell them that Jesus was the Messiah and they should believe in him. Not only were they monotheistic, they were moralistic. They had a, something of a moral code. They had definitions very clear of right and wrong. Sadly, the traditions of the rabbis had added more to the word of God than was there. Yet sadly, 
they thought you could be saved by adhering to the law. What that tells us then is that Jews might deny God by their good works. So it's right that someone is reaching them, right? Has to be the case. But then look at what verse 20 says. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus, there's that little island to the west, and men from Cyrene, that's in North Africa. So again, there's multi-ethnic mission going on right now. They went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also. Now, now the Greeks, well, this is a different kettle of fish. They weren't monotheistic. These guys were polytheistic. These guys worship idols of all sorts, gods of, of thunder and everything else. These guys didn't really have a, particular, a particularly straight moral code, if you like, like the Jews did. They were, well, they practiced immorality in lots of different ways. Uh, they believed that you were free to exercise and indulge in the desires of this body. It was fine to do that, even in worship. And where Jews denied God by their good works, Greeks denied God by their immorality. The point is, both are lost are in need of reaching. There are similar people in Edinburgh, you understand, today. They might not call themselves Jews. They certainly probably don't call themselves Greeks either, unless they're from Greece. But in the same way, people are trying to live their lives in such a way that some might have a certain belief or try to adhere by a certain moral code. They might think that by living a good life, there's, that makes something about them savable if there is a God. Or there are people who are just completely ignorant of God. They're pagan in their mindset. They're following all sorts of things, indulging in all sorts of sinful practices. The people that are being reached back then are the same people that are, need to be reached today. Very similar cultures, very similar mindsets, and we would do well to keep that in mind. But these guys are strategic. Did you see that? Some of them, men from Cyprus, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also. This didn't just happen. Uh, they've reasoned. There's something going on. We don't know the backstory fully, but we understand that, hang on a minute, through Cornelius, the Gentiles are being saved? Well, somebody should really go and tell the Gentiles. It's perfect logic, isn't it? It's common sense. Someone is going to need to tell them. Where should we go? I don't know. How about Antioch? There's some people already reaching the Jews there. What about the non-Jews there? There's a phenomenally huge population. Antioch was the third biggest city in the Roman Empire. It was huge. And actually, it was so multicultural, multi-ethnic. The Greek word that's used here to describe the Greeks doesn't actually describe people from Greece. It's not Hellenists, it's Hellenistas. Sounds like fashionistas. No, I'll move on. It is, it's a different type of person. In other words, it is a description for the kind of multicultural, cosmopolitan, Antiochian person. There were, when Antioch was built, um, it, was, it was built in such a way that it was going to be a colossal city, but it was strange as a city. Architecture will tell you this. It's not just strange in the sense that it has a massive wall built around it. There are massive walls built all through it to the point that they, they kind of segregated communities in there. So you had a Persian community and you had well, all sorts of communities and you had Romans, Europeans in there. Uh, you even had 
history testifies this. You even had Chinese people at that time living in Antioch. So if you were hungry in Antioch, you'd get a pizza, falafel, or spring roll at any time. Just, you had just had to walk through one of these wa- doors, not the walls, walk through the doors of these walls. That would be weird. Um, <laughs> and, and you could cross cultures. And so the doors were open, you were able to mix, but yet there was still a bit of a defined culture there. Now, it reminded me a lot of New York. If you've been to New York, you'll understand this. New York is a multicultural, multi-ethnic city. It's brilliant in many ways, uh, but there's still an Italian quarter, etc. There's all these different places where, you know, there's Little Italy, there's these different places that, are, um, that really are reflective of the places where people of that ethnicity are from. I think that's what Antioch is like. So these guys are thinking, well, the, the non-Christians need to hear this. So let's go and tell them. Where do we find a lot of non-Christians? Well, there's a lot of non-Christians in Antioch. Lots of non-Christians from all sorts of different places. Now, you're not telling me that this wasn't a plan. Imagine we could go and reach them. Imagine if someone from, from a Chinese background became a Christian. And then imagine they went home. I mean, do we not think in these terms... Surely we do. We live in a cosmopolitan city. There are lots of people from lots of different ethnicities here. We explored some of that last week. Surely it is our great hope that people who come to faith here or who join us in the church and are discipled here, whether it's through the main services or through our international work, wouldn't it be a phenomenal thing to be intentional in making disciples of internationals of all backgrounds and cultures and sending them off? back to their lands to plant churches and share the gospel where they're from. Sounds like a plan. Sounds like something we should pray for. What did these guys do when they went to Antioch? Well, it wasn't rocket science. Verse 20c, the last part of verse 20 tells us, they went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. It's the same all the way through the book of Acts, isn't it? His living, his dying, his rising, his ruling. We saw that in Acts 2. That's repeated again in Acts 10 in the sermon to Cornelius. Actually, it's peppered all the way through Acts so far. The fundamental truths of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, of who he is and what he preached and what he promised to those who trusted in him. It's simple. That's what they went to do. They knew that the gospel was good news that they had to share. And the second half of verse 21 tells us that when they did this, a great number believed them. But here's the thing. It might be easy to think that it's because of the strategic mindset that people were saved. It might be easy to think that it's because of you know, they had nailed the two ways to live presentation or something like that. You know, they, they, it, you might think that it's something to do with their strategy or their ability. You know, maybe there was a Rico Tice of the day, you know, was, was the guy from Cyrene, you know. But actually, what we read in verse 21 is that the Lord's hand was with them. And a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Now, the hand of the Lord is a very important theme throughout the Bible. It's really worth, if you use an app on your phone, a Bible app, or if you've got a, a, a what do you call them? Concordance. Look up the words. 
Look up, look up the phrase for the hand of the Lord. Search it, see how many times it's there. See how influential it is, both in positive and negative circumstances. So in Exodus 14, for example, when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians who were pursuing them to death, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses' servant. In other words, the hand of the Lord, as they got across the other side of the sea and the enemies were vanquished in the sea, they praised and glorified God for the might of his hand. It's a symbol of his power. And what we're seeing in this text is that the Lord's power is at work similarly even in the salvation of souls. It's his business. We must share the gospel. We must be strategic about doing so. We must be crystal clear in the message that we share so that people are under no illusion what they're signing themselves up for. But we must remember that it's God's doing. Spurgeon says, suppose that without divine aid you should try to save a soul. You might as well attempt to make a world. Why, you cannot even create a fly. Regeneration is this great mystery. It is out of our reach. It is beyond our line. We share the truth of God with others. But to apply that truth to the heart and conscience is quite another thing. Oh yes, we persuade But I have preached Jesus Christ with my whole heart and yet I know that I have never produced a saving effect upon a single unregenerate man unless the Spirit of God has opened the heart and placed the living seed of truth within it. That means then that we should not be daunted at the prospect of sharing the gospel even with those who are coming from a moralistic I'm going to live a good life and get into heaven background or, well, an immoral background a pagan background, a complete, I have no concern whatsoever for there being a God or living according to a God's rules. We should not be daunted. I wonder if our forgetfulness of the strength of the hand of the Lord is a reason why we become fearful when it comes to mission. And I use that word in every way that it's meant, whether we're talking about you being on mission with the person sitting across from you who's not a Christian in a conversation. Maybe it's people who live in the same household as you. Or maybe it's people in a nation that is far from here. We often think that it all depends on us. We're fearful of the prospect of failure. We think things depend on our knowledge. We feel we can't share it. Not until maybe we've learned a bit more or beefed up our knowledge on a sticky issue. There is a basic principle here that I've seen lived out again and again by those who become Christians and share the gospel quickly. Have you noticed that? A lot of evangelistic zeal is most evident in those who have just come to faith. I remember it from my own experience. And I've often prayed, Lord, restore that zeal to me. Why is that? Because you're freshly impacted by the grace that has saved you, the wretchedness that you've been saved from. But you're also gripped by the fact that God is mightily at work to save, even through you sharing the simplest message. You know enough to believe, you know enough to proclaim. It really is as simple as that. It's great to see 
that it's not the paid pros that do this work either. Did you notice that in the text? It's not Peter who goes up. It's the people who have been saved in Jerusalem through the original preaching and they've been built up and they're the ones that have been sent out and they've gone to these places and they're anonymous. It's quite unusual in the book of Acts. We even get to know who Agabus is later. But we don't get to know. Everybody can do this. It's not just that you don't need to be a Rico Tice or a John Piper or whoever in order to share the gospel. God can do an unbelievable work when his hand is upon us. We just need to speak out. This reminded me of uh, um, the Commonwealth Games a couple of years ago. Remember Lindsay Sharp, the Scottish silver medalist? Um, do you remember her story? It's quite gross, isn't it? Do you remember the interview? She was telling everybody on BBC Sport about how she was up being sick the whole night before and had only an hour of sleep and didn't eat anything and she was on a drip and all. And you were like, oh, too much information. You know, half the people in Scotland had just fainted at uh, the information that she was giving them. But when she was interviewed, it was fascinating to hear her and see even what was written on her hands. Um, you know, she, she, as she talked, said that she felt her weakness. She felt the weakness of the past 24 to 48 hours. And yet, she said that something just kept coming back to her mind, that she was confident of her ability. Confident of what she could do. And so she had written on her hand for that race, get out strong, commit. And I wonder sometimes when we are when we feel our weaknesses when it comes to this call to go and make disciples. Do we need to remember that if the Lord's hand is with us, we can have confidence in our abilities because the abilities that we've been given are gifts of his grace. We've been entrusted with a gospel to share. As Ross read earlier from Exodus 4, God is the one who's even given us mouths to open and speak. We can do it. The adequacy in mission, the success in mission, does not rely on the efficiency of the messenger, but the sufficiency of the message empowered by the Lord's hand. Are you with me? So get out strong into Edinburgh and to the nations and commit unbelievable things can happen when the Lord's hand is with us but let's be strategic about it let's be thoughtful about it we can be second thing I want to highlight tonight is the church's role in everyday discipleship um, we see this in verses 22 through to the end of the chapter. I mentioned the fact that these guys had been, the people in Antioch had been strategic as they had gone to that city and decided to declare this message of the gospel to everybody who needed to hear it, this multi-ethnic people. And a great number of people had been saved. Now verse 22 tells us that news of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem. Okay, there, there, There's a movement of God happening and they're going to they're, they're check it out. So they send Barnabas to Antioch. Now, do you remember Barnabas from earlier in Acts? He's, he's, he's been there a couple of times. We first met him in Acts chapter 4, verses 36 and 37. He was so taken by this mission to go and make disciples. 
He was so absorbed by the fact that he was now part of the New Testament people of God, the church, that he wanted to support God's work in the building up of the church, both in terms of edification of the body and through addition by numbers of people believing. And he sold some property that he had and brought the gift and laid it at the apostles' feet. He was such an encouragement. His name was Joseph, but he was such an encouragement that they gave him a nickname. I love nicknames. Barnabas, son of encouragement. He can't help be an encouragement. He's an encouragement in the gifts that he gives. But he's also encouragement in the gentleness that he shows, the advocacy that he really gets alongside people. That's what encouragers do, isn't it? So when the apostle Paul is converted and he's presented before the apostles in Jerusalem, they're a little bit reluctant to accept his testimony. They're like, ah, we know your game. You're the guy with letters. You know, you're the guys with the key to the jail cell and you're the one that's putting people like us to death for the things that we believe. Yet, so convinced was Barnabas by God's ability to save even the most unlikely soul that he advocates for Paul's acceptance and brings him into the fold. And he's an interesting character as well. He's, he's from Jewish background, but he's a native of Cyprus. And it's interesting that though he's not an apostle, he stayed in Jerusalem when earlier in Acts we were told that everybody was scattered. Maybe he stuck around to encourage those who were facing the persecution of the authorities. Well, verse 24 also tells us that Barnabas, this guy who was an encourager, was also a good man. He had a beneficial effect on people, full of the Holy Spirit. So he's using the gift that God has given him by the Holy Spirit. Uh, he's gifted in certain ways to do a work particularly well. He's clearly a leader and an encourager. And he's a man who's full of faith. He's in tune with Jesus. His radar is set to find evidences of his grace as he does when he goes to Antioch and he believes the Lord's promises and acts on it. Wouldn't it be great to meet him? It'd be great to have more Barnabases, Barnabai. Don't know how to say it. It must have been a costly thing to send Barnabas to Antioch. Do you not think? I mean, if you were Peter, right, and you had Barnabas by your side... Would you want to send him? Oh, uh, James is a good candidate for this. You know, you, you would think, but Barnabas, he's a great guy and they send him. And I think that's an important principle. If we want to see disciples made in this city, if we want to see hundreds of people reached and churches planted in the city, because that's effectively what's going to have to happen if we're going to see hundreds of people come to faith. We're not going to be able to pack them all into the, to, to the Shanwick Place building. We're going to have to plant churches in different areas across the city. The question is, would we be willing to sacrifice some of our leaders, some of our best workers in the church in order to establish a work that has started somewhere else? It's an important principle for us. As I thought about this during the week, I couldn't help but think about Martin and Ross, our apprentices and past them training. I love these guys. I, I love working with them. I, I love being involved in their training. I would quite like to keep them forever. Uh, my wife would not let me take them home, but neither would their wives. 
it has to be said, but a time is coming, a time is coming when in all likelihood we will send it. And it will be a painful thing for us because they're doing a great work among our students and young people. They're doing a great work among our youth. They're doing a great work in our office. They're doing a great work among the pastoral team. They're doing a great work in lots of ways that we maybe don't see them in and around the congregation. And it will be a painful thing. You can think of other people in this church. Who's the the Barnabas that comes to mind for you? Would you be willing to send them, even at the cost of your relational ties, because they're going to leave and they're going to cleave to the new church, right? It's an important principle for us, something we need to get ourselves ready for if we believe the Lord's hand is with us to see a great number of people come to faith. It's important for us, more and more as we train up people of caliber to do the many and varied roles that are required within a church situation. Well, we'll feel the pain of it, but we need to do it. What do we send them to do? What is Barnabas sent to do? Verse 23 tells us, when he arrived, he saw the evidence of the grace of God. He was glad and encouraged them. There's the first thing that he did. He encouraged them to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. In other words, he's telling them to pursue wholehearted discipleship. Wholeheartedly follow Jesus. Pedal to the metal, full pelt, follow Jesus. That's what he got alongside them to do. Remain true to the Lord with all your hearts. I've got this little book that I read with my children called Halfway Herbert. It's brilliant. I love it. I read it when they're, not in, when they're in bed and asleep. Um, Halfway Herbert is a little kid. It's an illustration. Uh, he's not a real person. Halfway Herbert um, is a little kid who does things half-heartedly. And so you see the pictures of him in the first few pages. And he's got one shoe tied and the other one's not. Uh, he's got half of his hair combed and the other half is like scraggly. Uh, the, 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 his, his top row of teeth are beautifully white and gleaming. The bottom row of teeth are covered in plaque. You get the impression. He does things half-heartedly. And the, the, the thing that the book shows us is the difference between a half-hearted follower and a whole-hearted follower. Just through simple examples in everyday life. And it's almost like Barnabas comes alongside these guys in the church to show them how ridiculous it looks to say you follow Jesus and yet be half-hearted in doing so. Things aren't going to look right and it's going to affect our mission and it's going to affect our sanctification. If we're not concerned for wholehearted discipleship, we'll be half-hearted in our mission, half-hearted in our pursuit of Christ, half-hearted in our uh, attentiveness in sermons, half-hearted in our daily Bible reading and prayer, half-hearted in every area of Christian discipleship. And it's a concern for us. What causes half-hearted discipleship? Well, partly, there's lots of things actually. Failure to grasp the lostness of the lost. Failure to understand who has ownership of our lives. We belong to the Lord, not ourselves. Failure to recall the necessity of obedience, of walking in his ways. If you love me, you will obey what I command, Jesus says. Failure to grasp the gospel itself. Failure to stand in the face of temptation. 
failure to pick up a brother or sister who is willfully sinning in really obvious ways, but we're just not willing to to point it out to them. Um, A failure to exercise a clear church membership policy. Failure to exercise a clear church discipline policy. All of these things can lead to half-hearted discipleship in a church that affects the holiness of the people and the effectiveness of their witness. But what produces wholehearted discipleship? Well, learning more about God's about God through His Word, being taught more and more, so that our affections are stirred for the wonders of His character and the incredible things that He has done, and actually being bowled over by them as we ought to be. That's what it means to love God and be thankful. That's what Barnabas does when more and more people are being brought to the Lord. Well, He's already encouraging them. He's coming alongside them. He's full of the Holy Spirit and faith. But whenever more and more people come to the Lord, as the end of verse 24 tells us, verse 25 tells us Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And he found him and brought him back to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. He knows that Paul has been called as a light to the Gentiles. Paul's already explained this whenever he was saying, let's, let's advocate, let's, let, let's come along, you know, Let's bring Paul into the fold here. His conversion is genuine. And he he goes to Tarsus, where Paul went to minister, and brings him to Antioch, and for a whole year they focus on discipleship. What is that? Well, it's focusing on the grow aspect of church life. It's focusing on the necessity of going deeper in our faith of going deeper in our knowledge of God and our appreciation of him. And that's what we seek to do. That's what we must seek to do if we want to plant churches. We must be wholehearted in our discipleship. We must preach disciple-making sermons because it's God's word clearly taught and properly applied that transforms lives. We want to encourage meaningful discipling relationships in the church where we really are helping each other, coming alongside each other to really help each other understand what a text is saying. What is God saying to us in this? What, what specifically does this require of us? How should we change? That's why we want to encourage one-to-ones and small group Bible study. The reason why we're thinking long and hard about making growth groups central to our disciple-making strategy is that we need both the big meetings on the Sunday and the small meetings midweek to maximize our discipleship. It's very, very important. And we need to invest in key leaders and those showing real potential. Even building up a team ministry as best we can in order to make sure that everybody's being discipled really really well I wonder are you going deeper in your knowledge of God are you going deeper in your study of him when was the last time you read a really challenging Christian book one that encouraged you to really go deeper in your faith or shed more light on a text of scripture that really brought about a change in your life. You can ask us for recommendations of any. Ask each other what they would recommend. 
There's a false perception that theological education, for example, is only for vocational church staff. But actually, theology is immensely important for every single one of us. We're all theologians, whether we really admit it or not. We are. When we study God's word and the doctrine of God that it communicates to us, we are. Maybe we need to go deeper. Again, this was a strategic thing. Do you know by 150 AD, there was a collection of teachings called the Didache back then that was pretty much curriculum, discipleship curriculum. Here are the things that you need to know about God and who he is. His Trinitarian nature, the personal work of Jesus Christ, those kind of things. And here's what life in a local church should look like. Uh, Here's what it means to practice baptism in the Lord's Supper. Uh, There was a whole list of things, a a body of teaching, a curriculum that was used. And it struck me that we as a church, if we want to be a disciple-making church that really builds each other up, to build each other up in a way that it really drives our disciple making, our mission, we need to go deeper and take it seriously. Will it make any difference? That's the question. Will it make any difference to us? Will it make any difference to the number of people who are lost in this city? Will it make any difference in this body, this church family called Charlotte Chapel, if we do these things? If we send our best and take our discipleship seriously, if we are strategic in thinking about planting churches and making disciples in all sorts of different areas of the city and world, what difference will it make? I think the text shows it makes a difference on both counts. I think we see people who don't know Jesus sit up and take notice. Non-believers in Antioch obviously saw a change in people. Look with me at verse 26. See at the very end. So uh, for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. And how do we know they grew in their faith? The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. In other words, there was something particularly identifiable about them. There was something identifiable about these guys that they were given an identity. They were given a name. I think that's telling. Because remember Antioch, when they were building the city, they didn't just build walls around the city, but within the city. But the gospel, and people who are called Christians, for the first time in history, people were crossing walls to properly worship together. Because that's what the gospel does. Bulldozes the barriers, unites people who would not otherwise have been united. I think we see this especially. I'll give you a wee sneaky peek into a few weeks' time. In Acts chapter 13, verse 1, it tells us that there are five leaders who get together. They represent three continents and four different people groups, and they're the leaders of the church in Antioch. It's quality. That's what we see. That's what the gospel does. Finally, there's something that can actually break down all the barriers that people put up between each other, and it does it in such a way that nothing else in the world can compare. That's how we know that it makes a difference. That's how we know that the gospel can make a difference in this city. What about among ourselves? Actually, before I get to that, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, or maybe you have been thinking about Christianity for a while and you're just you're kind of slowly taking it in, well, that's okay as long as you're spending that time wisely, digging deeper and asking a Christian to explain things to you. 
this is all about Jesus. We're really just doing what he's asked us to do. To take the best news in the world, the news of forgiveness of sins, by believing in his name, to you. And to everybody. And our encouragement for you is to recognize that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin and rose again three days later to tell us that that sacrifice was accepted and that by believing you might have eternal life and a relationship with God and a part in his glorious purposes. You should believe. It's glorious. Who knows, in a couple of years we might send you. But brothers and sisters in the church here, we too will sit up and take notice This is a difference that it can make. Verses 27 to 29, I don't have time to go into it. Let me just explain this to you briefly. We've seen already that the church in Jerusalem exercised their care and support of the movement in Antioch by sending their best. Now we see a similar concern rise up in the believers in Antioch at the news of this famine and the difficulty experienced by those in Judea, in Jerusalem, around that area, because of the famine, they sent help. They exercised their togetherness, their brotherliness, their interdependency by being generous. It, the gospel made a difference. They recognized they were just not, they were not there just to take, but to give. That's what happens when we're wholehearted disciples. People out there, Notice. People in here, notice. So let's be wholehearted disciples. And let's witness without discrimination to the truth about Jesus, knowing that the Lord's hand is with us. It's precious, right? It's great. Let's not be scared. He is with us. Let's pray together.